0: God answered this prayer the next day on Calvary as Jesus paid the price that was separating these people from communion and fellowship fully with the living God. And then on Pentecost, Jesus sent His Spirit. That Spirit that worked in the heart of His children, giving them to know that wondrous holiness, that sanctification, and giving them to enjoy the blessedness of that union. This morning we celebrate, beloved, that union, and we stand in awe. What a wonder that Jehovah God has seen fit to take us and to bring us into a unity that is so precious and so marvelous that there's nothing that can compare to it, a unity that is so wondrous that nothing can separate us from the wonder of the love that we enjoy with the Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. Jesus here speaks of himself as the mediator, as the head of the church, as the one through whom all the blessings flow to his church. And his prayer is that we be one with him and with the Father. And we celebrate that union, that communion, one with another, and especially with the living God as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. That they all may be one, we take as our theme, the prayer, the manner, and the glory. Jesus Christ stood before the reality of the cross as he uttered this prayer. The disciples were sleeping in the garden, but Jesus was very keenly aware of their great need for him. Even though they had fallen asleep, he was conscious of the fact that two distinct worlds were represented in the world in which he was about to leave. There was on the one hand the world of the reprobate, concerning whom Jesus states in verse 9, I pray not for the world. On the other hand, there was the world of the elect, for whom he repeatedly prays here. For instance, in verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Throughout all ages, these two distinct peoples have lived in the midst of this world. Those who are the reprobate, those who are the elect, according to God's sovereign, determinate counsel. And Jesus expresses now his prayer that the Father be one with those whom God had chosen, whom he had elected from all eternity. That those individuals whom God had set his heart on from eternity whom he had expressed his love for, now be brought into the fullness of the perfection of heavenly bliss and joy. Jesus has been with them. He expresses here his struggle, his challenges. As he was with them, he sought to teach them, to lead them, to guide them, that they would walk in the way of everlasting. He sought to preserve them from the temptations of that world of wickedness and sin. But now he's about about to depart from them. And his prayer is that God the Father will preserve and keep those individuals unto the full realization of glory that they anticipate. And so Jesus expresses that desire for union and he repeats it some three times here. In verse 21, as the Father art in me and I in thee, that they may be one in us. In verse 22, the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. And then in verse 23, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one. The emphasis here is on the spiritual union that Jehovah God, the holy and righteous one, takes to himself a people whom he perfectly dwells with in complete union. And again, we stand in awe of that. How can the holy and righteous God fellowship with sinners? The unity that he's praying for isn't just outward, just that he was walking with them and enjoying that union. It's more than that. How are the Father and the Son united? In perfect spiritual harmony. In true holiness, righteousness, and perfect knowledge. And now Jesus desires that same union for the people, those whom the Father had given him. He's looking forward ultimately to the wonder in the new Jerusalem. When in the new Jerusalem, God's children will dwell with him in the fullness of that blessed joy and that communion. This prayer has often been misunderstood by some to be taken out of context and applied then to an outward sense of unity. The idea that this is primarily applied to the fact of bringing all churches together in order that all churches can be one. The fracture that characterizes Christ's church on earth is tragic, and it is due to sin. Those divisions can be traced all the way back to the apostolic age. We think of Paul and Barnabas conflicting over whether John Mark would go along with them on their mission journeys. Now God used that for good. God enabled it that way that a broader community could be exposed to the gospel. Paul and Peter experiencing conflict as it's recorded at times through the book of Acts. Through the ages, sin, stubbornness, refusal to acknowledge fault have resulted in fracture to the church of Jesus Christ. But even more seriously, there are conflicts of a greater measure. Those who refuse to submit to the clear teaching of Scripture, who forsake cardinal doctrines of the Bible to their demise. The unity here for which Jesus is praying is not just an outward unity, it's a spiritual unity. Now it's true that that spiritual union that exists between us and the Father will have an impact outwardly. It will show itself in our lives. And Jesus makes much emphasis of that. Sanctification, holiness is going to be evident. And there's going to be a desire too for those who are united to Christ to bind themselves together with fellow saints. Establish churches then that are in accordance with his will. Our membership in the universal body of the elect motivates us to seek union one with another and to establish congregations that are faithful to God in a local church institute. Christians who claim, I belong to Jesus, but then they don't have any desire or make any effort to join themselves to the local institute are unfruitful and unfaithful to Christ. God calls to seek that union on the basis of the truth. Now we understand as believers seeking union with other believers and even churches that there are non-essential matters. Matters that we must not rise to the position of making of them essential matters. We must not allow those non-essential matters to divide the church. Our church order speaks of them The Bible emphasizes that, especially, for instance, in Romans 14 and other passages. Whether or not we use musical accompaniment, whether or not we cover our heads for worship, whether or not we hold special services on Christmas or other holidays, the mode of baptizing babies, these things are not matters that the Bible directly and explicitly speaks to. And therefore, to divide the church of Jesus Christ over these matters is not faithful. But there are doctrines, there are practices that go beyond the category of non-essentials. Matters that pertain to essential, cardinal doctrines of God's Word. Matters of sin and disobedience, of holiness and unholiness, righteousness and unrighteousness. And those are matters where we don't compromise, but rather we seek unity with regard to those matters. Confessing particular grace, the importance of the antithesis, The unconditional character of God's covenant. Marriage for life. These are biblical truths that demand our faithfulness and our allegiance. And to be one with God, then, is to be united with Him in His Word, agreeing with what He teaches, and confessing and living in accordance with His will, walking in holiness and in godliness, even as He is holy, and maintaining what's right, even as He is righteous. There are those who promote unity at all cost and end up with an outward unity then that is not a true unity. And that's not what Jesus here is teaching. How are the Father and the Son united? Marvelously. They're united in a perfect spiritual harmony by which they agree fully in holiness and righteousness and true knowledge. And our union now with God is to be A reflection of that wonder. God takes to himself a people now who of themselves are sinners and he recreates them in the image of his own beloved son. He takes us and he makes us holy even as he is holy. Righteous even as he is righteous. And he works in us that true knowledge by which we know and understand then the things of his kingdom and the glory and honor of his name. This is a marvelous wonder and it's worked by the Holy Spirit. And it's for this that Jesus is praying here in verse 19. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Notice the marvelous statement there. The truth sanctifies. In other words, the truth has an impact on my life, it has an impact on my walk. Knowing who God is, rightly confessing Him, is going to impact my walk with Him and my holiness. And Jesus here is emphasizing, verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth. And what is truth? Thy word is that truth. That word and the truth have a powerful impact. And we know that it's the Holy Spirit. Jesus poured out the Spirit, and the Spirit now is at work in the hearts and lives of God's children. And the fruit of that Spirit is moving us to know our sin, to confess it, The Spirit moves us to see the rebellious character of our nature. The Spirit moves us to confess the truth and draws and leads us into a greater confession of the truth, acknowledging that we always need to learn. There's always something more that we have to understand better. And we pray then for that Spirit and for His work. And as we're in the Word, and as we pray for the work of the Spirit, we seek to grow in knowledge Not only to know that we are righteous in Christ, not only desiring that holiness and that sanctified walk, but also rightly to know him in order to glorify and to praise him now and to all eternity. God works a humility in our hearts as we realize how quickly the devil can deceive. We realize how quickly our pride can get in the way of things and we're ashamed of our pride. We bring the word to others. We walk humbly. We promote God's will. And above all, we promote the word of God. God's word. That's our strength and our comfort. Now as we do so, beloved, we don't believe that we're the only people that are going to heaven. We don't believe that we're the only church that's faithful to God. We realize and acknowledge there are many other churches throughout the world that are faithful in varying degrees. We work to get to know others. We desire to understand their confession, what it is that they're teaching. We desire to learn from them where we're able and to be a humble witness concerning the truth. What does God say? What does God teach? That's what's most important. And I need to humble myself before the clear teaching of God's word. As it comes to institutional unity, this is why we have as churches a contact committee. And that committee is tasked with the responsibility to seek out and to pursue relationships with others who may agree with us on the cardinal doctrines of grace. And so we engage with them. We desire to have fellowship and communication with them in order to help one another more clearly understand The teaching of God's word as it applies to all of the different aspects of the church and the life of believers. And we believe that God is busy. He's gathering his children out of every nation, out of every tribe, out of every denomination, out of all kinds of different churches. God is the one who works in the hearts of his children, that wonder, and then draws them to unity with one another in order to reflect more fully that unity that they enjoy with him. Now, as we confess the wonder of that work of God's grace in our hearts, as we know the Spirit and as we know the work by which God humbles us and leads us to understand and to sharpen one another with regard to the truth, we also realize the calling that God gives us to seek membership in an instituted church, a church where the marks of the true church are found. The preaching of the pure gospel of salvation Christian discipline, and the faithful administration of the sacraments. We seek out fellow saints with whom we can confess and live the truths of God's Word. We need accountability. And we seek out that accountability not only individually as we join ourselves then, one with another to a body, but then as a church we need that accountability. And therefore, we join ourselves with other churches and we open ourselves up to their inspection through church visitation through classes meetings through other opportunities in that way and our desire is to grow in our understanding of the bible rightly dividing the word of truth in order that we might reflect the wonder of that unity to the fullest measure that we can now of ourselves we're sinful we're weak but god is the one who accomplishes this wonder and that's jesus prayer here knowing how weak how sinful How inclined we are to pride and to pursue our own will. Jesus falls on his knees on our behalf and he utters this beautiful prayer. God, take these who are so weak, so sinful. They're sleeping right now. They don't even understand the dangers and the challenges they face and cause them to know the beauty of that union and that wonder that we have established. Father and Son with them. Now repeatedly, in a very practical way, there are movements then in communities, including here in Hall, to join ourselves in combined worship service with all the churches in town. Pressure comes on our congregation to just eliminate the, the differences. Don't talk about what divides us. Instead, let's just unite. And in that way, it's said by some, we're reflecting what Jesus desired here in John 17. We're all part of one body after all and the theory here is then that no single church, no single denomination can claim to have truth or criticize another, but rather we need to live in fellowship and communion with one another. And so individuals from all different denominations, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, Christian Reform, Reform, United Reform, all join together then, breaking down our differences and just Expressing a unity, so called, that we gather together. Each t- church maintaining their own doctrinal structure, we're not going to separate from the doctrine of which we're a part, but now we're just going to show somehow, in a concrete way, our union one with another. Now, this movement goes seriously wrong with respect to the concept of unity, the unity of the church while we have much in common perhaps with individuals and we desire to talk with them and we desire to communicate with them more fully the truth, we recognize that there is yet fracture. There's yet division here. There's fragments that need to be talked about, need to be discussed. Rather than just smoothing over the differences, these wounds are not healed by ignoring, but rather by talking, discussing, communicating, seeking more faithfully to live in the union that Christ here requires of us. With the attitude that prevails often, there's no room then for mission work. There's no room for outreach to various churches because rather than talk about what divides, we just have to treasure what we have in common, the Bible or Christ, very general, so that the common denominator is broken down to very basic and very simple truths. Beloved, that's not, again, what Jesus here is emphasizing. Jesus is emphasizing here a unity that is a unity that is with the Father and the Son in the truth of God's Word. It's a unity that comes with patient, humble discussions centered around God's Word, challenging one another rightly to divide and to understand what the Bible teaches. And Jesus is emphasizing another important thing. This is God's work. God is the only one that is able to accomplish this wonder. The church is God's handiwork. And God here causes this church now to live in the conscious wonder of her union to Christ and with one another. God took these people and he gave them to Christ. That's the emphasis here. For instance, verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. God has given these to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ now, acknowledging these individuals as the body, expresses, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. Jesus here is talking about the church in terms of the universal church, the universal body of believers that comprise the elect. We understand distinctions that can be made. There's the church as the universal body of elect, and there's the church as the institute in the midst of this world. Within the institute, there are members of the body of the elect, but there also may be members that are not included in that body of the elect. So that the institute is broader than that which would comprise God's universal church, that comprise of his elect. But jesus here is talking centrally and primarily about that body of the elect as that body of the elect has been given to christ and now christ lays his life down for them chosen in christ redeemed by him his prayer is that god will keep them as they find themselves in the midst of this world and that god will preserve them in the unity that they enjoy with him and that that unity they enjoy with him will be their motivation also to seek out union with fellow believers in order that they might live in the Word and the joy of the Spirit. The church is formed by God's irresistible wonder. God calls. He issues the command by His Word and Spirit, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And He works by His Spirit a response in the hearts of those who are His elect, and they come. They're drawn to Christ. They know Him as their Lord, their Savior, and they acknowledge the wonder of the communion, the fellowship that God has worked on their behalf. God takes His church and forms her into a unity with Himself in Jesus Christ, binding them in true love and faithfulness to Jesus as their Savior. A unity that's not man's work, it's God's work, and it's a wonder of wonders. God working in the hearts of people To make them desire expository preaching. To make them see their sin and desire the right use of the sacraments. Working in their hearts a humility by which they acknowledge the necessity of spiritual biblical discipline. A faith that ultimately works in them the wonder that they are united to Christ and nothing, nothing can separate them from the wonder of that union. Now, as God works that privately and individually in our hearts, he puts in us, too, again, that desire to join with fellow saints in order to confess together what God has worked in our hearts. And we pursue, then, that unity, the unity of the local instituted church. Now, the outward evidence of that unity is not, what go- it's, it's not always going to be what we would desire. And that's why when we confess the Apostles' Creed, we make it a matter of faith. We believe that that body of the elect is united even though now for a time they're found in different churches, different denominations. They're scattered through the world. They seem as though they're so divided. Nevertheless, we believe that Jehovah God by a wonder of his grace has worked that union with himself and that there is that holy Catholic church that is the object of our faith. And we acknowledge because of sin there's going to be schism in the body. But ultimately, no family dispute, no church struggle, no denomination fracturing is going to ultimately destroy the unity between Jehovah God and his children in Jesus Christ. That union is preserved by faith. And that union is on the foreground here. The manner in which it's accomplished is the wonder that we celebrate this morning. The death of the Son of God was necessary to attain that perfect unity between God and sinners. The unity of the church is the unity of the body of Christ. Man sinned in Adam, and by virtue of our sin then, we were cast off, alienated from the presence of Jehovah God. But God, from the beginning, ordained that would not be the way it would remain. God would send His Son. And God would send Jesus to go to Calvary as the suffering Savior in order to reconcile those sinners to Himself. That He might take those whom the Father had given Him and reconcile them in perfect unity with the Father. Death was required. The curse of God against sin required death and hell. The soul that sins, that soul must die. In order for these sinners to be reconciled to the living God, they had to die and suffer hell as the punishment of God. Jesus Christ came and he took that punishment willingly, sacrificially, on our behalf. The focal point of our faith then is on the cross the wonder by which Jehovah God took his own son and hung him there on that accursed tree for the sake of our atonement that we might be reconciled with God. And Jesus bore the full punishment of God's wrath in order that every last one of those whom the Father had given him would now be brought into the full presence of the Almighty God knowing righteousness, holiness, true knowledge and a union that could never, ever be broken. We read verse 20, literally, Believe into me. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me. The word on there is better translated, believe into me through their word. And the emphasis is somewhat similar to that which we celebrate in connection with baptism. That through baptism, we're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We sinners are taken into the family of God. And we're given a place as God's adopted children in that glorious and wondrous family. That's the wonder that God here accomplishes. Sinners taken into Christ. He's the head, they're the body now. There's a union there that can't be broken. Now, that union with Christ produces a twofold confession in our lives. First, a confession who Christ is. We acknowledge that He is the one whom the Father sent into the world, according to verse 21. He is the only begotten Son of God. We acknowledge that he is the one on whom our sins were laid so that we might know the way to heavenly joy and glory. We confess God in Jesus Christ as the only Savior, as the only mediator, and as a sufficient Savior and a sufficient mediator. Salvation is not of man. Salvation is all of God. And it's through the wonder of Jehovah God giving his only begotten Son through whom that Marvelous work was accomplished. That confession rises from the hearts of the sinner. I know salvation can't be in any way attributed to myself. My confession is all glory, all praise be directed to Jehovah God and the wonder of Jesus Christ. But secondly, a confession then that we see the love of God in that cross. Verse 23, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them even as thou hast loved me that the world, even the world can see, these people are the objects of the love of God. God loves them, and he showed that love to such a degree he sent his innocent son to bear the punishment that they deserved. The love of God was on Jesus Christ as he hung on Calvary. And in that love, God opened the way through Jesus Christ for all of his children to know the fullness and the wonder of that love. What a great Savior we have and what a wondrous love our God has bestowed upon us. That's the confession that God works in our hearts. And we acknowledge this union is a wonder of his grace. Now Jesus says two really important things about that union. First of all, that union has its origin within the Godhead. There's perfect union between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the union that they enjoy together isn't just outward union, it's true spiritual union. They're one. And now secondly, God has taken his children and taken us into the enjoyment of that union. So that the union between saints is not independent of Jesus Christ, but it draws its life out of the wonder that God has taken us and has joined us to Christ. So that the Godhead, now is united to us by a true and living faith so that the life that we live is no longer an earthly life. It's no longer our own will and pursuit. It's the life of Jesus Christ and the pursuit of his will and the treasures of the gospel. God has taken those whom he has chosen before the foundations of the world and he has worked a marvelous, a wondrous union that they also may be one in us jesus says this union then is profoundly spiritual jesus is not just praying for outward denominational unity between churches he's praying for a unity that doesn't come at all cost just outwardly he's praying for a profound spiritual wonder the wonder of the mystical union between jehovah god and his people in jesus christ by which they live now their lives out of Him and for Him and to Him. That they confess that as they live in the midst of this world, they're not of this world. There's a distinction. There's the world of the reprobate, but they can't number themselves among them. By a wonder of grace, they have been drawn out, called out, and given to know the Father's love and the wonder of fellowship within The wonder of his joy. That love and that wonder is ours in him. And that wonder makes it possible for us to enjoy communion with each other. Jesus paid the price. And now we come together as fellow believers, confessing our sin one to another, acknowledging our total dependence upon him, confessing the wonder that the guilt and shame of our sin has been covered. And united to Jesus Christ, we confess nothing. No one can separate me from the wonder of that love. That love is so marvelous. It's so wondrous that with the doxology of Romans 8, we confess nothing, no one can separate us from it. That's the wonder we celebrate this morning coming to the sacrament. What great things, beloved, God has done for us. Taking us sinners and uniting us to himself in Jesus Christ with a union that can never be broken giving us to know righteousness, holiness, and true knowledge. That's the glory that is evident now then, reflected in a creaturely way from his children. And Jesus speaks of that glory. The glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one. The glory of God given to Jesus Christ, and now that glory given to his people in order that we might... In a creaturely way, reflect the wonder and the joy of that love and that righteousness, that holiness, that knowledge as we live here below. What is that glory? Jesus has spoken of it in verse 5 here. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Being the only begotten of the Father, Jesus partook of the divine nature. And he was one with God. In the intimacy of that life with God, he participated in all the divine activities of God. He was present in creation when God said, let us, let us make man. Jesus was present there, cooperating in all the activities that were taking place within the triune being. He created the world. He upholds the world. He preserves and keeps all things. He emptied himself and became a man. He who was rich became poor for the sake of those whom the Father gave him. Never did he lose his divinity. He remained God. He remained very man at the same time. But while on earth, Jesus then suffered the effects of sin and he endured the struggles and the difficulties, the persecution, the oppression. And now he prays that not only he might return again to the blessedness of that glory that he previously had in heaven where there was no more sin, no more suffering, no more persecution and struggles, but that all those whom the Father gave him would also be brought together into the fullness of that joy. And Jesus now accomplishes that through his perfect death, his resurrection, and the pouring out of his Spirit. He renews, In His image, those whom the Father given Him. And God takes us and God makes us image bearers of Jesus Christ in that righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. And we now reflect in a creaturely way the wonder of the glory of God. How do you define the love of God? Look at the wonder of what He did to me and the marvelous work of grace in my life so that I reflect the wonder of His love. I reflect the wonder of His righteousness and His holiness. God's glory works a unity of purpose among his children, that they may be made perfect in one. Perfect here means complete. That they can be complete. And what Jesus here is seeking is the completion of his church. That comes out especially when he's speaking of the fact that, in verse 20, "...neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word." There's his children that haven't even been born. There's his children that are found throughout the world now. And he's saying, I'm not just praying for these, but also for the ones that they're going to minister to. The children they'll teach, the grandchildren that'll sit on their knees. The ways in which they'll be used in order to promote the gospel and do missions in order that others will hear and be brought. Jesus' prayer is for the full gathering in order that all might be brought to the praise and the honor of the Father. That unity of the church, beloved, is a unity of faith and truth. Faith is the confession of the truth as it's in Christ. And that faith, a gift from God, by which we lay hold on the truth, powerfully affects our life. It works sanctification, holiness, a desire to do what's right, a confession of our sins, a turning away from the pride of our nature, and a desire to forsake the lust and to do that which is good pleasing in the Lord. That life reflects itself again in the expression of the local church as believers come together and as believers join themselves and establish a church of Jesus Christ where office bearers who reflect Christ and his work are instituted into office and where the presence of Christ is found then through the preaching, the sacraments, discipline as Christ and his work is that which is promoted. The unity of the church is impossible apart from Christ. And that unity extends then to denominational life as multiple churches join together for the common, express purpose to express that unity that they have in Jesus Christ and to give Him glory. Joining together so they can better carry out the work that's assigned to them. The work of missions, the work of training men for the office of ministry. Only when that unity is on the basis of the truth, will it also bear the precious fruit of holiness and sanctification in the lives of the members where discipline is administered, where God's grace is evident. Judas forsook. He wanted nothing to do with Christ or with that unity that was in the Spirit and in truth. This is God's work. And that's the point of Jesus' prayer. Jesus praised this expressing This is the work of his father. He goes to his father. He's in a position where he's powerless to unite these scattered disciples that are going to flee Calvary tomorrow. They're going to flee. They're going to run. They're going to scatter. But God alone is able to work such grace in the hearts of his children that he will take these who are so weak, who are so sinful, who treasure worldly unity above union with God, who would easily sell their confession of Christ to experience peace with man. He will take these, and He will unite them to Himself. And He will give them to know the power of His Spirit, working repentance, sorrow for sin, drawing them to Himself. God's children have that calling. Seek spiritual unity. Seek to walk with God. Read the Bible. Be busy in the Word. Come to the table of the Lord. Confess the wonder, that union that you enjoy with Him. Seek fellowship with other believers with whom you share that truth and with whom you can discuss and talk about it. Seek greater unity among other believers in order that you can discuss the matters that divide and come to an agreement with regard to the teaching of God's Word and promote above all the glory and honor of jehovah god jesus beloved knowing the weakness of his children knowing that this is the work of god praise and how much more do we not pray we knowing how weak we are knowing this is the work of almighty god we thank god jesus says this is in the hands of my father that they all may be one and beloved the wonder of wonders is this god answered this prayer God answered this prayer through the cross when Jesus was given the power to cry out, it is finished. Everything that the Father sent me to do, I've accomplished. The glory of the church was accomplished and the unity between God and his children had been realized. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What does the Bible say about that resurrection? It was the testimony of our justification. He was raised for our justification. His resurrection testifying that God now declared concerning those whom the Father represented, you are righteous in Christ. And Christ pouring out His Spirit in order that the Holy Spirit might live within His saints, not allowing them to continue unrepentantly in sin, but bringing them to see their sin and confess it. Christ continues, beloved, this prayer from heaven. And He continues also to work the answer by His Spirit in our hearts, drawing us to Himself, bringing us to confess our sin, our weakness, our pride, and working in us that confession, the greatness of the glory of God and the wonder of the love that He had for me. He gives us the sacrament in love, a sacrament by which He says, as you eat this bread, as you drink this wine, and as that bread and wine becomes a part of you, Believe, lay hold on the wonder of faith that I am bone of your bone. You are flesh of my flesh and that we enjoy a unity that cannot be broken. And we look forward to the day when he will bring us into the fullness of that unity in the new Jerusalem. Beloved, by faith we confess the wonder of that prayer and its answer. And he gives us to know that we are the sons of God his life, his blessing, are mine. And we demonstrate then that union with him and with one another. Amen. Our Father in heaven, what great things thou hast performed in our behalf. Strengthen and bless us that we by faith might press on in the wonder of the love with which thou hast loved us and that we might enjoy union with thee, with one another, and with the body of believers throughout all the world as we celebrate the greatness of thy love. This we pray for Jesus' sake, amen.